Father, we thank you that you are a good God. Lord, you are so different from the pagan gods that man makes up out of his own imagination, gods who are fickle and who are not good and who are selfish, um, and you, you don't know what they're going to be like from one day to the next. Lord, we thank you that the true and living God is not that way, that you are good, you are goodness itself, you define for us what good is, and Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, that your loving kindness, your steadfast love is the same today as it was stretching on back into eternity, and it will be the same tomorrow and the next on into eternity as well. So, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are a rock that we can stand on. Um, every other foundation that we look to is just shifting sand. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to stand on you only. And as we come to your word this morning, Lord, help us to better understand who you are and what you, what you have accomplished for us and the hope that you have set before us. Um, help us to follow the example of our Savior, who for the hope set before him uh, endured the cross. Lord, help us to look to him so that we, like him, may endure and partake of the life that he has won for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're back in 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at verses 29 through 34. So turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. In verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. As we've gone through this chapter, we've been learning that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. There are many who say, don't get into doctrine with me. I don't want to hear about that. I just want the simple message. Don't get into doctrine with me. But we have to understand that what we believe has a direct impact on how we live. What we believe has a direct impact on how we live. And nowhere was this more evident than in the life of Paul. Before Paul's conversion, Paul believed certain things. Or rather, he did not believe certain things. Paul did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He thought that Jesus was a fraud, a liar, and just a dead man who had become an idol to certain people. People who were proclaiming, in Paul's eyes, this dead man to be the Messiah. Paul did not believe before his conversion that Jesus was worthy of being worshipped. And so Paul considered these believers in Jesus to be a threat to the Jewish way of life and to the Jewish religion. 
And because that is what Paul believed, he devoted his life to trying to hunt down and exterminate Christians. And this behavior that was determined by his beliefs, this behavior of his continued until on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the risen Jesus. And in that moment, what Paul believed about Jesus was turned upside down. It was flipped on its head. Paul found out that Jesus was alive and that Jesus was Lord. And that was proved by the fact that Paul had just gotten knocked over by the glory of this risen Christ and had been blinded by that glory of this risen Christ. And when Paul recovered from his encounter with this risen Christ, he would spend the rest of his life preaching the very Jesus that he had hated so much, and he would spend the rest of his life seeking to multiply the group of people that beforehand he had been trying to wipe out. Christians. You see how what Paul believed determined how he lived. When his beliefs changed, the way he lived changed drastically. Because he now believed in a risen Jesus, Paul's reason for living had changed, and Paul's way of living had changed. His new belief had completely rewired his motives and his behaviors. And I think we need to ask ourselves frequently, what do I believe? What do you believe? And specifically, in light of the passage we're looking at this morning, what do you believe about the resurrection of the dead? This is an important question because what you believe, as we saw with Paul, what you believe will determine why you live the way you live. And that's what we're going to see in today's passage. First, in verses 29 through 32, we're going to see that belief determines motivation. What we believe bakes into our hearts certain motives which determines how we live. We're going to see how belief determines what motivates us. What is our why of living? That's what we're going to see in verses 29 to 32. Just to review a little bit to see where we are in this chapter... A few weeks ago, we looked at verses 12 through 19, and we saw there Paul discussing what the theological consequences would be if it was true that there was no resurrection from the dead, because that's the problem. There are some in the midst of the Corinthians who are teaching that there's no resurrection from the dead, and Paul wanted to make it very clear to these believers what the consequences of that would be if indeed that was true. And we saw that the consequences were these. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then what I've been preaching to you guys, Paul says, is vain, empty. And if what I've been preaching to you is vain and empty, your faith is worthless. The message that I preached to you that you believed is worthless and it cannot save you. Those were the consequences if such a thing was true, that there's no resurrection from the dead. Well, here in verses 29 through 32, Paul is returning to that discussion. Again, he's jumping off of this false premise as he did in verses 12 to 19, this false premise that says there's no resurrection from the dead. 
But here, instead of listing the theological consequences of such a falsehood, here he seeks to show them the absurdity of the Christian life, if indeed it's true that there's no resurrection from the dead. And he gives two examples of practices that don't make any sense if there is no resurrection. And the first example he gives is in verse 29, and it is the baptism for the dead. Verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Paul says, otherwise. Um, Last week, we wrapped up verses 20 through 28. There, Paul was affirming very strongly that what some were teaching about there being no resurrection from the dead was not true because Jesus had risen from the dead. And because Jesus had risen from the dead, that guaranteed that his people would be raised from the dead as well. So in verses 20 to 28, Paul was rebuking, uh, refuting those false teachers by saying, Christ is risen from the dead, therefore you will be raised from the dead. And the day is coming when God will be all in all as a result of Christ rising from the dead. But here in verse 29, he says otherwise. Otherwise, or in other words, if what I've just said about Christ's resurrection is not true, and the dead are not raised, verse 29, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, Why then are they also baptized for them? Apparently, there's a group in this Corinthian church who are being baptized for the dead. Now, this verse is probably the biggest head-scratcher in the entire Bible. One commentator mentioned that there are some 200 interpretations of what Paul is talking about when he mentions those who are being baptized for the dead. Let me list those 200 interpretations for you now. Just kidding. I won't do that. But the reason why there's such confusion over this verse is because this practice that Paul refers to of being baptized for the dead, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. And Paul does not go on to explain it for us. Of course, the Corinthians knew what he was talking about, but because we're only hearing one side of the conversation we have really not much of any idea what he's talking about. But the most straightforward interpretation of this is that some of the Corinthians had taken on the practice of being baptized in the place of a believer who had died before that believer had a chance to be baptized. It may have been a way for these believers in the church to graphically show that the deceased, who had not had a chance to be baptized, yet that deceased, through faith, had been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And they all had the hope of seeing him again. And just to make that plain, someone in the name of the deceased would be baptized for him. Just maybe as a way to convey that to everyone in a very powerful way. Now, nobody's sure if that's really what Paul was talking about, but that seems to be the most straightforward understanding of this verse. 
And though we don't know exactly what Paul means, it's not hard to figure out how it fits into his argument here. Now, before I get into that, Paul is not necessarily commending this practice. He's just using it in his argument. So don't come to me later and say, Josh, I want to be baptized for this dead loved one, because I'm not going to do it. So don't ask me to do that. But it's easy to see why Paul is bringing this up, how it serves his argument, how it serves his refutation of those who are teaching there's no baptism from the dead. And it works like this. That practice of being baptized for the dead makes no sense if it is true that the dead are not raised. Because what does baptism speak about? Baptism conveys the death and the what of Jesus Christ? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it conveys the believer's union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, then baptism, whether it's for yourself or someone else, is utterly pointless. Baptism would be conveying something that's not true. You're showing me that Jesus rose from the dead, and you're showing me that a believer is raised up with him? Well, that's false if there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul's saying if there's no hope of seeing again a fellow believer who has died, then what in the world are you doing being baptized for them? It's absurd. It's absurd. So that's the first example. The second is a personal example from Paul himself. And this is Paul's daily dying. And we see this in verses 31, or excuse me, verses 30 to 32. He's going to show them another absurdity in the Christian life if it's true that the dead are not raised. In verses 30 to 32, Paul uses himself and the other apostles as examples of those whose way of life is pointless if it's true that the dead are not raised. In verse 30, Paul says, why are we, speaking of himself and the other apostles, why are we also in danger every hour? Why are we also in danger every hour? When Christ appointed a man to be an apostle, if you're looking at it from just a worldly point of view, that basically was a death sentence. For Christ to appoint you as an apostle was basically a death sentence. Apart from the apostle John, church tradition tells us that every single one of the apostles were martyred, executed for their proclamation of Jesus Christ. And it's not as though the apostle John got off from any suffering. No, he suffered greatly. So to be an apostle was to live out the rest of your days in a perpetual state of danger. And that is because the world hates Christ, and the world loves to shoot his messengers. And the chief messengers were the apostles. It was to live with a giant target on your back as you are surrounded by the enemies of God every day. So Paul, he's not exaggerating when he says, why are we in danger every hour? And to show he's not exaggerating, he doubles down on what he just claimed in verse 31. Verse 31, he says, I affirm, brethren, 
by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. Paul is taking an oath here. He's swearing something. He's solemnly affirming something. That he dies daily. There was not a day in the Apostle Paul's life when he was not on death's doorstep. That's where he lived. He lived on death's doorstep for the sake of Christ and for the sake of Christ's people. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 11. And we've gone to this passage, I think, a number of times. But it's worth reading again so that we get a sense of the truth of, of what Paul has claimed. I die daily. 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. He says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. There was no safe space for Paul. He's basically listed every category of life he could have listed, saying he was in danger there. Verse 27, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? It's interesting that Paul, at the end of that long list, he tops it off by listing the suffering that came with being concerned for those he had led to Christ. It's as if that caused him the most suffering because it was suffering that took place within him. The other things were external, but he had that daily suffering of concern inside of himself for those he had led to Christ. Paul lived and died with the ebbs and flows of the spiritual well-being of his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul's not kidding when he says, I die daily. And he doesn't want the Corinthians to think he's just overstating things. When someone wants you to take them seriously, they'll say, I swear this is true. And when they really, really want you to take them seriously, they will swear to you, buy what's most precious to them. I swear by my mother's grave. You know I'm telling you the truth because I wouldn't dishonor my mom by lying to you. I swear by my mother's grave. Here, Paul is swearing by the boast he has in them. He says, I affirm, brethren. He's making a solemn declaration, an oath. I affirm, brethren, by the boast which I have in you in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Paul is swearing by the boast he has in them. He stakes the truth of his claim that he dies daily 
on the boasting that he has in the Corinthians. And we kind of just read over that because we don't really understand what he's saying. But it's no small thing. Paul's resurrection hope and his eternal reward was inextricably linked to the souls of those who had been converted under his ministry. And to show you this, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. It wasn't just the Corinthians that he was so concerned about and attached to. It was every congregation that he administered to. The church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul exhorts them, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that, here's the key, in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. What would make his ministry in vain if those he led to Christ didn't make it to the end? If they didn't show up in heaven with him, that would be to empty his ministry to make it empty. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 of Philippians. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He's calling these people his crown, which is the reward that Christ will give him on that day. They are his crown. Next, go to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 19. He says, For who is our hope, or joy, or crown of exaltation? That word exaltation, it's the same word as the word for boasting, back in 1 Corinthians 15. I affirm by the boasting I have in you. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And then chapter 3 of that letter, verse 5 Paul says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, he was wondering how this congregation was doing. And when it became unbearable for him to remain in the dark about how they were doing, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So the people that Paul ministered to were most precious to, to him. His eternal reward was bound up in their lives. And it was no less the case with these Corinthian believers. They were his glory. They were his boast in Christ Jesus. Their spiritual well-being was what Paul risked his life every day for. Their growth in Christ and their perseverance in the faith was 
very literally his eternal reward. And so when Paul says, I affirm by the boasting that I have in you, I die daily, he's saying, I cannot be more serious about this. So he's, he's being truthful. I die every day. If the dead are not raised, his dying daily means what? Nothing. Nothing. If the dead are not raised, Paul is pouring himself out for Christ, pouring himself out for Christ's people, risking his life for them for nothing. And his boast in the Corinthians is an empty one. And his hope of spending eternity with them will not come true. So Paul is showing them his, his whole way of life is wrapped up in the truth that there is a resurrection, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And he's showing them if that's not true, then the way I'm living is completely absurd. Verse 32 of chapter 15, Paul says, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Here's just an example of him dying daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now when Paul says that he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, he's most likely speaking metaphorically. It's doubtful that he's describing an event where he was thrown into a gladiatorial arena to fight wild animals. As a Roman citizen, that's probably not something that would have been allowed to happen to him. And he most likely would not have been allowed to survive that sort of thing. If you're a Christian and they throw you into an arena to fight wild animals because you're a Christian, what's the intent? That you don't get out alive. And there's evidence that this phrase, fighting with wild beasts, was used with a metaphorical sense as well. And that seems to be how Paul is using this language. Flip over to chapter 16 of this letter. Remember, Paul says he fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. Chapter 16, verse 8, he's telling the Corinthians his plans. He says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service is open to me. And there are many adversaries. We learn here that Paul was writing this letter to them from Ephesus. And that Paul was facing many adversaries there. And so when he says, I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, he's probably talking about this, these adversaries that he had while living there. There were many, many people who wanted Paul dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Paul is contending against these people with the gospel from human motivations. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Paul's contending with these individuals, it doesn't reach past this life. There are very limited motives that would be driving him to do that. There would be nothing of eternal value at stake for Paul to be fighting these wild beasts. And Paul asks, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if I'm doing this simply from a human temporal perspective, what could I possibly stand to gain from this if there's no resurrection from the dead? 
Again, Paul is saying, my life is completely absurd if there's no resurrection from the dead. Verse 32 goes on to say, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, if there's no hope beyond the grave, then Paul is saying, I should just stop this ludicrous way of living. I should instead live it up. I should get as much out of this world as I can get because this is all there is. I should eat and drink for tomorrow I die if there's no resurrection. Paul here seems to quote from Isaiah 22:13 when he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Turn there with me, Isaiah 22. This chapter speaks of God's judgment being poured out upon the people of Jerusalem. And it's likely referring to the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. And the prophet Isaiah describes Jerusalem here as the valley of vision. Chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Isaiah writes, The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now, that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. That refers to the, the siege that was uh, carried out against Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians didn't need to swing a sword to beat the city. They just starved them out. Verse 3, all your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. And this is Isaiah's response in verse 4 from seeing this vision. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls, and a crying to the mountain. Then verses 6 through 11 describe the coming of foreign invaders and what the people would try to do to survive in the face of such judgment. Verse 12, Therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. What is that a picture of? What is the Lord calling them to when he says, the Lord called you to weeping and wailing, to shaving the head and wearing sackcloth? Repentance. He's calling them to repentance there by that judgment. Verse 13, instead, instead of repentance, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. So as judgment falls upon the people, God calls them to repent in response to that discipline. But because the people have no eternal perspective and they have no appreciation for the fact that they are about to meet their maker, 
all they can think to do is to squeeze the last drops of pleasure out of this world that they can squeeze before they die the next day. Now, do you see the contrast between how Paul was living and how those people of Jerusalem were living? Remember 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31. Paul said, I die when? Daily. But those in verse 32 say what? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You could say it this way. Paul chose to die to himself today, to die to his selfish goals and desires because he knew he would live tomorrow. But these people who say, let me eat and drink for tomorrow I die, these people choose instead to live for themselves today, to chase after their selfish goals and desires because they know tomorrow they're going to die. That is the difference between someone who has an eternal perspective and someone who does not. That's the difference between, on the one hand, someone who believes that Jesus rose from the dead and who will raise his people from the dead, and on the other hand, someone who does not believe the dead will be raised. If it is true that there is no resurrection from the dead, then whose lifestyle is the right way to go? Paul's or the people in Jerusalem? If there's no resurrection from the dead, who's living in a, in a wiser way? The people in Jerusalem. If there is no life beyond this life, let me get as much out of this life as I can today while there's still time because tomorrow I'm going to die. But that's not our reality. Because Jesus has risen from the dead and because he will raise his people from the dead, who's living the wiser life? Paul or the people of Jerusalem? Paul. He, he chooses to lose this life that he may have the life to come. Whereas the folks in Jerusalem, they throw away the life to come so that they can have the last drops of pleasure in this life. Paul here in, in chapter 15, in this passage, he's trying to get them to understand that what you believe determines why you live the way you live. If you don't believe there's a resurrection from the dead, your motivation is going to be entirely different from the person who does believe that there is a resurrection of the dead. The believer, the believer in the risen Christ, the believer is free to die today for the cause of Christ and for the good of others because he knows since Jesus died for his sins and rose from the dead, he will live again and he will live forever. The unbeliever, on the other hand, having no hope beyond the grave, is enslaved to this life. He's compelled to get as much as he can out of this life before it's too late. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, he who does not die to himself and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, 
and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying, he who has found his life in this world will lose the life to come. But he who loses this life in this world for my sake will gain it in the one to come. So belief determines motivation. Belief determines motivation. It determines the why of your life. Why do you do what you do? In verses 33 to 34, we find that belief determines behavior. Belief determines the way you live. Not just the why you live, but the way you live. And we see this in chapter 15, verses 33 to 34. In verse 33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul, he does not want these believers in Corinth to allow someone to pull the wool over their eyes. He doesn't want them to allow themselves to be deceived. And he quotes a secular proverb to them, and this secular proverb happens to be true. Bad company corrupts good morals or good behavior. Now, what kind of bad company is Paul talking about here? Any ideas? What kind of bad company is Paul talking about here? Well, who has been the root of the problem that Paul has needed to address in this chapter? Verse 12, those who are teaching, there is no resurrection of the dead. They are the bad company that is corrupting the good behavior of these believers. Now, that tells us that bad company does not only include those who are behaving badly, but bad company also includes those who are teaching badly. If you hang out with people who are habitually doing wrong things, that's eventually going to corrupt your good behavior in Christ. Likewise, if you hang out with people who are habitually teaching wrong things, that is also going to corrupt your good behavior in Christ. So Paul here, he's, he's telling these believers to stop allowing these false teachers to be a part of their life as the church. These false teachers are going to corrupt, destroy their Christian living. Paul has the same idea in mind back in 2 Corinthians 11, earlier in the chapter. In verses 2 to 4, Paul says this, writing to these same people, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray. That word for led astray, it's actually the same word as corrupt in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. That's the same concern. 
Paul doesn't want these believers to allow people in their lives who are going to feed them falsehoods that will corrupt their good behavior in Christ and lead them astray. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 34, Paul says, Become sober-minded as you ought. Become sober-minded as you ought. Listening to false teaching and believing false teaching is intoxicating. It makes you spiritually drunk. Spiritually drunk. False teaching causes you to lose self-control and to throw off the restraints that by the Spirit you've placed upon your sinful flesh. Believing false teaching inevitably leads you to believe that you're free to live in a way that dishonors God because you don't think that way of living dishonors God anymore. False teaching has warped your thinking into into believing that I can live this way and God's okay with it when the opposite is true. And denying that there's a resurrection from the dead will certainly have this effect upon these believers. Because as we saw in the previous verses, believing there's no resurrection from the dead removes all motivation from the believer to live a godly life in this life. When you don't think that you're going to have to give an account to your Creator, when you don't believe that there is a risen Savior whom you are going to have to physically stand before one day, and you're going to have to face-to-face give him an account and receive from his hand a reward, an evaluation of how you lived your life in this life. If you don't believe that's going to happen, you're not going to live in the light of that. It's going to blunt your desire to please him, because you don't have to answer to him. And what does his opinion matter anyway? He's dead if there's no resurrection from the dead. In Revelation 22:12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. If you don't believe that's actually going to happen, you're not going to live in the light of that. So Paul says in verse 34, Sober up. Become sober-minded. Throw away this false teaching that is inebriating you. And he says, stop sinning. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Apparently, these believers had already been corrupted by this false teaching. And as we read through this letter, we discover this, this congregation that Paul is writing to had a lot of problems. I wonder how many of those problems stemmed from their compromise with this false teaching that there's no resurrection from the dead. These Corinthians have been listening to those who Paul describes as having no knowledge of God. These people who deny the resurrection of the dead They don't know God. You cannot know God and at the same time deny the resurrection of the dead. There are certain things that you cannot deny and at the same time be a Christian. 
And one of those things is denying the resurrection of the dead. If you don't believe that there's a resurrection of the dead, you're not a Christian, and you're still dead in your sins. And this is the people that the Corinthians have been listening to. And that's ironic, because what do the Corinthians think about themselves when it comes to the knowledge and wisdom department? They think they're at the top of the totem pole, that they don't have a need for anyone to teach them anymore. Remember Paul's sarcastic description of them back in chapter 4, verse 8. He tells us what they think of themselves. Chapter 4, verse 8, he says, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. It's ironic that these believers who consider themselves as not lacking in wisdom, it's ironic that they have stooped to be taught by those who do not know God. These Corinthians think that they are the top of the pile when it comes to knowing God, and yet they are allowing themselves to be taught by those who do not know God. It reveals that they're not even close to being as wise as they think they are. And it's often the case that those who think they have no need to be taught, they are most susceptible to false teaching, to being duped by those who do not know God. And Paul is saying this, I speak this to your shame. He's wanting them to become, uh, to have godly sorrow about their pride so that they will repent. And it all stems to what they're believing. The Corinthians' behavior was being determined, determined by what they believed. The more they listened to the resurrection deniers, the more their good behavior would be corrupted. But on the other hand, the more they would cling to God's truth, the more they would honor God in their lives. And I return to the question that I began with, what are you believing who are you listening to? And what is the fruit of that teaching in your life? If you find yourself giving in more and more to the ways of this world, if you find yourself giving yourself permission to live more and more the way this world lives, then you need to stop and take a look under the hood of your heart and examine what you're believing. And you need to ask yourself, and what I believing, does that flow out of this book? Because if you're living more and more the way the world lives, chances are you're believing some wrong things. I want you to think about how you are living your life. Are you dying to yourself today because you trust that you will live forever with Christ tomorrow? Or are you living for yourself today because deep down you have no hope for tomorrow and you do not yet know a resurrected Savior? If that's you, you need to realize that living for yourself is foolish because as a sinner, you are not worthy of that. You are not worthy to live for yourself. There's only one person worthy to live for, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is God made flesh. He alone is 
the mediator between God and man, the one who has paid the ransom required to save you by dying on the cross in the place of sinners and rising from the dead. So pick up your cross, die to yourself, and follow him. In Jesus, you will find life everlasting. Let's pray.